Section 11 of Lectures on Tropical Diseases by Sir Patrick Manson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Treatment of Fevers and Fluxes. Although we may be able to do something to prevent and even to mitigate the suffering entailed by the chronic tropical febrile infections spoken about in my last lecture, it is only over one of them that we possess any real therapeutic power. Taking them in the inverse order to that in which I have spoken of their diagnosis, I propose in this lecture to say a few words about such treatment as we may, with more or less advantage, be able to mete out to them. Leprotic Fever and Leprosy Leprotic fever and leprosy, like tubercular fever and tuberculosis, are best met by efforts to improve the general health, as, for example, by some modification suitable to the circumstances of the open-air treatment. If abroad, the patient should return to a cool and salubrious climate, and do everything in his power to build up his physiological resistance. Of drugs, Chalmugra enjoys the best reputation, that, unfortunately, is not saying much. Relapsing Fever Relapsing fever calls for the enforcement of those general principles that are applicable to the management of all infectious fevers. There is no special treatment for it. Elephantoid Fever Elephantoid fever might be attacked with some hope of mitigating the severity of the general symptoms by attention to the local conditions and by endeavoring to relieve the pain and inflammation of the parts principally effective by means of fomentations and soothing external applications generally. Trypanosomiasis It is said that trypanosomiasis in man can be influenced by the internal administration of arsenic. Certainly in every instance it cannot be cured by this drug. In at least one form of trypanosoma infection in the lower animals, we know that the fever produced by these protozoal organisms and the reproductive activity of the protozoal organism itself are to a certain extent controlled by the free administration of arsenic. Recent experiments by Laveran and others seem to favor the belief that a combination of arsenical treatment with such drugs as trypanroth, atoxyl, etc., may be even more effectual than by arsenic alone. Of course, a patient suffering from an infective disease of this nature should be placed under the most favorable hygienic conditions possible. Certainly, he ought to live in a temperate climate and not return to the tropics. The prognosis in trypanosomiasis is undoubtedly grave. Our present knowledge does not permit us to say how grave, I believe a small proportion of the cases do recover. Tropical splenomegaly or Cala Azar The same remarks apply to tropical splenomegaly or Cala Azar, both as regards treatment and prognosis. Rogers claims to have obtained benefit from the administration of large doses of quinine. The evidence he has brought forward for this belief is not quite convincing. Quinine by removing a concurrent malarial infection, may contribute indirectly to the recovery of the case, just in the same way that santonin, thymol, and other antihelminthics may do, but it has no specific action on the Leishman body. 
liver abscess. As regards the treatment associated with abscess of the liver, it is manifest that the only effective treatment is a surgical one. The sooner an abscess of the liver is opened, the better chance the patient has of recovery. It sometimes happens, as I have mentioned, that abscess of the liver discharges through the lungs. In these cases, an important practical question crops up. Should such an abscess be opened surgically, or should the case be left to itself? Statistics show that of these cases, about 50% recover spontaneously, 50% die. Can we recognize those that will die? And if so, can we, by interfering in any way, give them a chance of recovery? Whenever liver abscess ruptures through the lungs, my rule of practice has been to watch carefully the progress of events for ten days or a fortnight. I weigh the patient, keep a careful record of temperature, and measure the daily amount of expectoration. If the fever abates, if the amount of discharge decreases, if the patient gains weight, in other words, if things are going well, I recommend that these cases be left alone. But if, on the other hand, the fever does not abate, if from time to time the discharge ceases abruptly and a rise of temperature follows this, and if the patient gradually loses ground, in such a case I recommend prompt surgical interference as being the only chance of saving life. Do not postpone opening the abscess and thereby establishing adequate surgical drainage. Until this is done, the case is beset with many dangers. I have seen such a case die suddenly from violent hemoptysis. I have seen such a case die from abscess of the brain. All manner of intercurrent trouble may occur at any time. Moreover, death from exhaustion, if these and similar intercurrent accidents are escaped from, is in the long run inevitable. It is therefore unwise to postpone surgical interference. It is not my purpose to deal with the surgical treatment of these cases. One word of counsel I would offer, however. Remember the position of the abscess in such circumstances. Necessarily, it is in the upper part of the gland. To reach it, the needle may have to travel far, and it is quite possible that in such an abscess, discharging through the lung, the abscess sac is collapsed and therefore not easily hit off. Should you, fortunately, as you push your needle on into the liver, succeed in lodging it in the abscess cavity, do not remove it. Leave it in situ as a guide. After plunging your needle in to its full extent and failing to find evidence of abscess, do not conclude from this that you have not struck the abscess. You may have passed through it and beyond it. Therefore, in withdrawing the needle, which should be done very slowly, you should be careful to keep a good vacuum, looking out for a sudden appearance of pus in the instrument. On this occurring, immediately stop withdrawal. At that moment, your needle is traversing the collapsed abscessed cavity. Keep your needle in as a guide and cut down on it at once. Mediterranean Fever Formerly, Mediterranean fever was treated by low diet and a variety of depressing drugs. The result was that a considerable amount, perhaps a very great amount, of anemia attended the progress of the fever and retarded convalescence. It used to be the fashion to administer phenacetin, salicylative soda, quinine, and similar antipyretics. 
Fortunately, nowadays, more sensible methods of treatment are in vogue. The patient is not starved or kept on a fluid diet. It is recognized from the outset that the illness may last for weeks or months. Strength is maintained by more liberal dietary, and when he is able to eat it, the patient is supplied with such solid food as he feels he can digest. Of course, when the tongue is furred or headache and fever are present, the appetite is in abeyance. In these conditions, a fluid diet of milk or broth with fresh lemonade is advisable. But in the intervals of fever, and frequently in the morning, even during the acute febrile stages, the patient can eat well, and then he should be fed well. Beware of monotony in diet, and be careful to include in these cases some form of fresh vegetable food, for scurvy is not unknown as a complication in Mediterranean fever. A recent important discovery, bearing more especially on the etiology and prevention of Mediterranean fever, inasmuch as it may have a bearing on treatment also, I would refer to here. For some time back, a commission of experts working under the direction of the Royal Society has been studying this disease in Malta. The commission has accumulated much detailed information, but the most important observation it has published is the fact that a large percentage of the goats in Malta are infected with Micrococcus melitensis, and that the milk of the infected goats contains the bacterium. The fresh milk supply of Malta is derived entirely from goats. May not this account for the great prevalence of Mediterranean fever there, and in other places, having perhaps a similar milk supply, and in view of the possibility that it is contaminated with Micrococcus, would it not be wise to withhold, at all events in the endemic area, unboiled goat milk from the dietary of Malta fever cases? One thing we should prepare for and be always on the lookout for in Mediterranean fever, and that is the appearance of hyperpyrexia. A mild case may suddenly assume a very grave aspect. Cold sponging, cold pack, cold bath, the application of cold in various ways should be instantly had recourse to on the temperature getting above 104 degrees Fahrenheit. If the attack happens to develop in the Mediterranean during the summer, the patient should be invalided to some climate cooler than that of Malta. But if, on the other hand, he is taken ill during the winter, he had better be allowed to remain somewhere in the Mediterranean basin, where the climate is more congenial than that of the north of Europe or that of America at this particular season. Malaria there are few diseases of which the management is so simple or so satisfactory as malaria. The treatment practically resolves itself into the administration of one drug, quinine. Probably we have no remedy in the pharmacopoeia so nearly deserving the term specific. I use the expression nearly deserving advisedly because quinine is not absolutely specific. For the cure of the clinical manifestations of malaria, quinine may be relied upon absolutely, but unfortunately it cannot be equally depended on for the eradication of the germ of malaria and therefore for the prevention of relapse. Quinine has sometimes fallen into disrepute, not because its effect as an anti-malarial drug has been exaggerated, but because either in malarial cases it has been administered improperly or because it has been administered in cases of disease inaccurately diagnosed malarial. 
When you fail to cure by quinine a case of supposed malaria, it is not the drug that is at fault, it is the diagnosis. There are several things we must pay attention to in administering this as in administering other drugs. We must take care that it is given in adequate doses, in a proper form, at the proper time, that its action is maintained during a considerable period, and that if necessary, its effect should be supplemented or fostered by additional measures. In an ordinary case of ague, from which serious consequences are not to be apprehended, as an ague the result of quartan or a benign tertian infection, my practice is not to aggravate the headache and febrile distress of an existing paroxysm by an immediate administration of the drug, but to wait until the fever begins to break and the sweating stage is well established, and then to give ten grains of quinine in solution. Thereafter, I prescribe five grains also in solution if the patient does not object to the taste, three times a day for a week. With a view of preventing relapse, 15 grains should be given every 10th and 11th day for six months. This treatment is usually absolutely successful. But as in many instances the germ does not die out for nearly two or three years, I think it desirable to give a short course of quinine at the spring and fall of the year of, say, 15 grains every 10th and 11th day during a month at each of these seasons. I also advise the patient should he be the victim at any time of exposure or fatigue or of physiological overstrain, to take one or two fifteen-grain doses of the drug on such occasions. In severe malarial remittance, especially in first infections, vomiting is usually a prominent symptom. The tongue is foul. It is evident that the stomach is in a highly catarrhal condition. Quinine administered by the mouth at such a time, is either immediately rejected or is not absorbed. Nevertheless, it is of importance that the patient be brought under the influence of the drug as quickly as possible. If the fever is allowed to run on, intense anemia is rapidly produced, not to mention the possibility of graver dangers. Therefore, it is necessary to have recourse to some other method of administering the drug. The best is by hypodermic injection. 7 to 10 grains of the acid hydrochloride of quinine in about half a drachma of distilled water should be thrown into some muscular part of the body, preferably into the gluteus muscle. I have never seen quinine administered in this way give rise to the slightest trouble, but I have often seen induration, if not abscess, follow the hypodermic injection of quinine conducted in the ordinary way which, moreover, is generally exceedingly painful, as well as to a certain extent dangerous. It is of special importance in administering quinine intramuscularly to observe the strictest asepticism. Solution, syringe, and needle should all be carefully sterilized, and the patient's skin carefully cleansed and soaked with antiseptic solution. Before the days of the aseptic idea, the hypodermic injection of quinine was not infrequently followed by tetanus. The tetanus, of course, being produced by the tetanus bacillus introduced by a dirty needle or a fouled solution. These intramuscular injections of quinine should be continued every six hours so long as the patient cannot retain or absorb the quinine given by mouth. So soon as the stomach settles, the drug may be given in the usual way. 
Certain grown-up people and all children have an intense objection to the taste of quinine. Fortunately, in euquinine, a recently discovered salt of the alkaloid, we have an absolutely tasteless preparation, one that even children take without a murmur. The dose is the same as with the other salts of quinine. The tabloid form of quinine is only admissible when the stomach is in a healthy condition. Then tabloids may be trusted if they are not too hard and if they are easily disintegrated. But in grave cases, particularly in pernicious attacks, we should never expose the patient to the risk of the drug remaining undissolved or not absorbed. Then quinine should be administered intramuscularly and the dose be large and frequently repeated. It is the fashion, and I believe a good one, to act on the bowels by some saline purgative from time to time during the progress of a malarial fever, but active purgation is undesirable. The anemia following malarial fever is best met by a combination of arsenic and iron. I find that intramuscular injections of arsenate of iron act more rapidly than the same drug given by the mouth, and moreover, if the drug is administered in this form, the digestion is not interfered with. It would be possible to speak at much greater length on the treatment of malarial fevers, but I do not think that any advantage would result from a further discussion of the subject. The beginning and the end of the management of this infection is the administration of quinine. All other drugs are useless in comparison with it. I have tried many of them. I never met with one approaching in efficacy the various preparations of quinine. Before leaving the subject, I would like to say one word of warning. When a resident of a highly malarious country leaves that country to return to his home in a temperate climate, he is very apt to think that he leaves the tropical disease dangers behind him. Now the contrary is the case. He carries the disease germs acquired in the dangerous country with him, and only too often they manifest their malignancy when the unfortunate victim thinks he has reached the haven of safety. Often on the voyage home he is attacked by what may prove a fatal fever. It is sometimes said that the bottom of the sea between the west coast of Africa and England is paved with Englishmen's bones. The moral from this is that the precautions against disease should be continued for months after the subject of infection has left the place in which the disease germ was acquired. I have seen malignant malarial attacks in England five months after the patient had left the west coast of Africa. Over and over again, I have seen blackwater fever develop many months after the endemic area has been quitted. Therefore, with patients who have been exposed to malarial influences, a systematic use of quinine should be kept up for at least six months after the patient has ceased to be exposed to the infection. I had intended to speak at some length on the etiology of the several forms of tropical intestinal flux, but I have used up so much time in discussing the diagnosis and treatment of the recurring and chronic fevers that I am compelled to confine myself to a very few remarks on the treatment of the two most important of these fluxes, namely dysentery and the condition known as sprue. You must pardon the egotistical style of the remarks I propose to offer. Lack of time prevents me from speaking of what others think on these subjects, or even of entering into anything like an extensive detail on my own views. In undertaking the treatment of dysentery, it is advisable to endeavor in the first instance 
to form a mental picture of the condition of the bowel it is proposed to treat the tendency with many practitioners especially in this disease is to disregard almost completely the pathological conditions and to direct treatment towards checking some leading symptom treatment is begun so to speak at the wrong end bear in mind that a patient suffering from dysentery is the subject of inflammation catarrhal diphtheritic or ulcerative of the mucous membrane of the large intestine there is if i may use the expression a surgical condition at the root of the disease to treat this surgical condition successfully the established principles of surgery must be observed and acted on and first let me remind you that it is against all surgical principles to treat an inflamed or ulcerated surface by blocking up either by therapeutic or other means the discharges proceeding from such a surface to produce constipation as one sometimes can do by means of opium in a dysenteric patient is therefore a thoroughly unsurgical and in the long run unsuccessful proceeding in all cases of intestinal flux i like to regard the intestinal canal in the light of a drainage tube to be kept open and not on any account to be blocked up i like to treat a medical disease of this description on what i might call surgical principles free drainage rest and the removal of any specific element that may be present rest is an extremely important indication to fulfill quite as important as drainage equally so is the last indication i have mentioned the removal of the specific element that is certainly present in the following remarks i do not wish to be understood as speaking so much of acute dysentery as of the more chronic forms of the disease though the principles bearing on the treatment are in a great measure identical in both conditions i wish to speak rather of such dysenteries as you are likely to encounter in patients who have returned from the tropics you will find that they are all or nearly all of the subacute or chronic type in many instances they are amoebic or at all events complicated with the presence of amoebae in the stools the method of treatment which i employ invariably in such cases unless there is some strong contraindication is to insist in the first instance on absolute rest in bed this measure even although the disease in some cases is of an insignificant character should always be insisted on it saves time in the long run and it makes powerfully for success then partly with the idea of fulfilling the same indication i reduce to a minimum at all events for a time the amount of food that the patient receives i give him just sufficient to keep body and soul together these two measures rest in the recumbent position and reduction of the amount of food to a minimum go a very long way to secure one of the surgical indications to which i have referred then i endeavor to clean the ulcerated or inflamed surface and for this purpose generally employ a mild aperient none better than castor oil finally i proceed to counteract the specific element which i consider is the principal agent in preventing the healing of the inflamed and probably ulcerated surface if there be not a specific element at the bottom of chronic dysentery how comes it that the ulcerated surfaces do not heal spontaneously i believe that in all cases of chronic or relapsing dysentery it is this specific element that is the real cause of the continuation of the disease just as surely 
as it is the specific syphilitic germ that prevents the healing of syphilitic lesions and that until this specific element is removed a healthy healing sore will not result and i also believe and my belief is founded on long experience that in ipecacuana we have a remedy possessing specific powers as against the germ cause of at least certain of the more common forms of dysentery i regard this drug as belonging to the same category of remedies as quinine or as mercury or as salicylic acid i know that in america and many parts of the world ipecacuana has lost its reputation as an anti-dysenteric i believe the reason for this has been the inadequate way in which the drug has been administered ipecacuana should be given in dysentery in exactly the same way as quinine is given in malaria or mercury in syphilis that is to say its employment must be kept up for a considerable time it must be given for many consecutive days a week a month or even longer i am convinced that used in this way it is a drug of great value and potency and i would urge american physicians to give it one more trial at all events in such cases of dysentery as have been acquired in the tropics my plan of procedure is as follows the patient is put to bed his bowels are emptied by a small dose of castor oil he is put on a diet of milk and barley water not exceeding in the aggregate three pints in the twenty-four hours the food is given every two hours from six in the morning until six at night from six p m to nine p m he starves at nine p m he receives a dose of ten to fifteen minims of tincture of opium and a mustard poultice is applied to his epigastrium at nine twenty just when he is coming under the influence of the opium he receives six five-grain pills of ipecacuana freshly made up with a little mucilage he is instructed neither to eat drink speak or move for at least three hours and to endeavour to go to sleep if saliva as is likely collects in his mouth he is directed not to swallow it but to have it wiped away with a towel nothing so surely provokes vomiting under these circumstances as the swallowing of the watery saliva that is so often a prelude to emesis there may be vomiting during the night but very often although there is almost always a little nausea the pills are retained next day the treatment is repeated only the patient has five grain pills on the third day and afterwards the tincture of opium is omitted and the patient has four pills next day he has three pills next day two next day one the five-grain dose may be continued for ten days or a fortnight, or if thought desirable, even longer. The effect of this treatment is to bring on a certain amount of catharsis, and so surely as this is established, the patient will improve. The art in the treatment is to regulate the doses of ipecacuana so as to secure a certain amount of catharsis, but to avoid the irritation that excessive purging may produce. Very likely, when the dose has been reduced to five grains, the purging will stop spontaneously, and the patient will then begin to pass healthy motions. Treatment does not stop here. Most people are apt to assume that because the stool has a healthy appearance the dysenteric ulcer must have healed. This, however, cannot be the case, for these ulcers are often large, an inch or more in diameter, with thickened edges and bases and inflamed periphery. An ulcer of these dimensions and characters, as we know from experience in syphilitic ulceration of the leg, for example, requires, even after it has lost its specific characters, 
several weeks to cicatrize. Therefore, I insist on the patient observing the same diet and the same treatment as regards rest and so forth for at least three weeks after the motions have become, to all appearance, quite healthy. I have tried many other kinds of treatment in chronic dysentery. None of them have proved nearly so successful as that which I have described. I fully recognize the value of other methods, and especially of the employment of different kinds of injections in the treatment of dysentery. These I regard as adjuncts to the specific treatment by Ipecacuana. Many times a lingering diarrhea, symptomatic of some catarrhal or ulcerated condition of the bowel which has ceased to exhibit specific characters, is checked by judicially timed injections of nitrate of silver or of some other astringent or antiseptic. I constantly use these. There is no more valuable remedy as an auxiliary to the ipecacuana treatment of dysentery than castor oil. This, too, I frequently employ. But my mainstay in the management of this disease, as I have mentioned, is ipecacuana, and I would like to see the use of this valuable drug revived in this part of the world. One of the most fatal and unfortunately common diseases affecting Europeans in tropical countries, more especially in India, the Malay archipelago, the Philippines, and China, is what is known as sprue. Manila has a particularly bad reputation for this disease, and doubtless in San Francisco you will see many cases from that part of the world in repatriated Americans. The nature of this disease is rarely recognized by the practitioner unaccustomed to tropical work. It is usually regarded as an ordinary form of chronic diarrhea and is very inefficiently and unsuccessfully treated by a mixed diet, intestinal antiseptics, and astringents. The importance of the subject is great, for sprue is one of those diseases which, if improperly treated, nearly always sooner or later terminates fatally, but which, if properly treated, at not too advanced a stage, can nearly always be cured. I believe sprue to be a disease almost peculiar to the tropics and subtropics. I do not know if it has a specific germ cause, but the symptoms and the pathological conditions are so peculiar that for all practical purposes it may be regarded as a disease sui generis, if not specific. Sprue sometimes commences long, years even, after the patient has returned from abroad. Usually, however, the patient returns from abroad in consequence of the disease. He complains principally of three symptoms. Diarrhea, usually morning diarrhea, sore mouth, abdominal distension. The stools are peculiar. They are generally loose, often very loose, sometimes of pultaceous consistence, rarely formed. They are nearly always pale or clay-colored, phenomenally copious, and usually fermenting. The mouth is sometimes better, sometimes worse. When comparatively well, the tongue has a remarkably clean appearance, bright red, sometimes appearing as if coated with varnish. At other times, the tongue may be slightly or considerably swollen, very red, and irritable-looking, and dotted with superficial erosions. Similar erosions occur under the tongue, on the inner surface of the cheeks and lips, in the throat, and doubtless in the gullet, for the patient often complains of a burning sensation under the sternum, readily provoked by swallowing food. The mouth is so tender that only the blandest substances can be tolerated. Sometimes the tongue is better, sometimes worse, but even at its best, the tongue is exceedingly sensitive to any sapid food 
to wine or anything but the blandest substances. The distension of the abdomen is much complained of, particularly after eating. The symptoms get better and worse, but on the whole, in untreated cases, emaciation steadily progresses, and after one or two years of increasing debility and emaciation, the patient dies. On post-mortem examination, a condition of bowel similar to that of the mouth may be discovered, that is to say, a congested, eroded mucosa. The wall of the intestine is phenomenally thin, so much so as to be diaphanous. Microscopic section shows destruction of villian glands and a sort of fibrotic hypertrophy of the submucous layer. Success in the treatment of this disease depends on thoroughness, and this implies the intelligent cooperation of the patient. Half measures end almost invariably in disaster. Drugs, unless as palliatives, are of very little, if any, use. The first thing to be done is to convince the patient of the deadly nature of his disease and exact his promise to carry out faithfully and in the minutest detail the treatment prescribed. This is simple enough and generally as effective as it is simple. It consists of one, absolute rest in bed in a warm room and in warm clothing. Number two, a diet of milk and nothing but milk, commencing with at most three pints in 24 hours. The milk should be given in divided doses every two hours, and it must be sipped with a spoon. After every feed, the patient should wash the mouth out with some boricated water or other non-irritating antiseptic. As a rule, within a day or two, the patient begins to feel the benefit of the treatment. The irritation of the mouth subsides. Abdominal distension vanishes. The motions become solid. The quantity of milk must not be increased until appetite is developed. Then, by increments of half a pint at a time, the quantity of milk is slowly raised until six pints are consumed in the course of the day and night. When this amount has been arrived at, the patient may be permitted to get up, but exertion and exposure are to be avoided. Additional food must not be permitted until the motions have been quite free from suspicion of diarrhea for at least six weeks. The only exception to this rule of an exclusively milk diet is fruit, and of fruits the strawberry appears to be the best. Indeed, strawberries and probably other pulpy fruits appear to have a curative effect on this disease and may be tried early in the treatment. I have seen strawberries succeed when milk alone has failed. Occasionally we meet with cases which do not tolerate large quantities of milk. In such cases, milk evaporated to one-half its natural bulk may succeed. This certainly should be tried when ordinary milk or peptonized milk fails. Underdone minced meat, given as in the treatment known as the Salisbury treatment, is likewise worth a trial. Time does not permit me to enter into further detail in the treatment of sprue. My purpose will be served if I have succeeded in calling your attention to the disease, to its deadly nature, and to the efficacy of a pure milk or a milk and fruit treatment combined with thorough physiological rest. End of chapter 9